American Timelines is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network. Find out more at queencitypodcastnetwork.com. So now I'm obsessed with time. Come on, tell me about the time. Had it all in my hand tonight. Had the time of my life. When the words all come down, like blues on Tuesdays come down. Throw it all away. Welcome to another episode of American Timelines. I'm Amy and that's Joe. And she's good looking and I'm not attractive. And this is the podcast that brings you all the crazy wacky pod culture crazy tragedies and all that stuff from history. Yeah, we go year by year and Amy likes to focus on a murder or a true crime story and then I'll tell you just notable things and events that happened and we'll just make light of them or be sad that they happened. We are history for jerks and this is history it's really not just for jerks. It's just a play on history, uh, history for dummies and all things for dummies. All right. But jerks is funnier. Uh, and that's included with the Nerd School Podcast and the Gruff and Loud Show. And this is American Timelines, our flagship program. Welcome. Okay. Thanks and for listening. We are winding up our that's right. 1959 season. We got two more episodes. Yeah, right? we're almost done with the 50s. Uh, which has been a long season. We've been doing this for like three years. Yeah, really. Uh, and we've decided when we're done with the 50s. We're going to mix the things up. We're going to just have a season where we just mess around and do whatever we want. It could right. be a random Crazy thing here. We could have Art Star from the Nerd School podcast come on and beatbox for 20 minutes. I don't know if that will probably happen. But... Well, he's got this new thing where he beatboxes with his butt. All right. Anyway, but you never know what it'll be. But it'll be interesting and fun. I promise we're going to just throw things at the wall and see what sticks. Okay. Right? There'll yes. be no format. It'll be the formatless season. No and, format. Any format. And we are talking we'll about September and October. Yeah. And why don't we go ahead and just accelerate here and skip the first nine days of September, shall we? Yes. I know you would like that. You like skipping. We're going to go right to September 10th, 1959. With this, well, quick warning, uh, trigger warning for anybody who is upset by children being destroyed. You might not like this episode because there's a lot of children that yeah. get destroyed in this one. It's not good. We not don't like good. it. We don't like it either. We have kids and we don't like them being destroyed. But the 50s were fucked up. Yeah, we need to know. Okay. September 10th, 1959 was a Thursday. And at Mountain Lake Park, Maryland, have you ever heard of that town? No. no. I love lakes. I don't love mountains. So I probably love Mountain Lake Park. But seven seven children were killed when their school bus stalled on a railroad crossing Ooh. and was struck by a freight oh, train. Oh, no. Can you Holy imagine? Holy shit. What a terrible way to go with poor kids. The How bu- do you get stuck right as a train's coming? The, Jesus well, Christ. is it? The bus had 26 on board and was on, on its way to Dennett Road Elementary School in Oakland when the accident happened at 8.30 a.m. That was probably before we they had railroad crossings. Yeah, probably. And I don't know how only seven got killed if there's 26 on there. Well, in the middle of the bus is oh, what's going to get killed. Of it, they just, or were they, you think they were all just rushing to either side? I didn't I, don't know. I didn't look this up because I couldn't bring myself to. Um, because the very next day on Friday, September 11th, 1959, one day after a similar, similar incident in Maryland, another train killed children on their way to school. Mrs. Irene Zimmerman and her six children were struck while on their way to Sacred Heart Parochial School in Waseca, Minnesota. Waseca, maybe. Mm-hmm. Uh, so back-to-back days, wow. children getting hit by trains. And then I think somebody somebody was like, oh, this is going to dampen the premiere of Bonanza. Well, let's uh, let's hope maybe somebody was like, let's get some railroad crossings Railroad crossing involved. signs. Can you imagine? So there probably wasn't. You're probably or right. Like there signals. were no signals the probably signals at all. signals probably weren't there. In these rural areas probably. Oh, uh, no. Uh, and then September 12th was a Saturday of 1959. Bonanza appeared for the first time mm-hmm. on American television, premiering at 7.30 p.m. Eastern on NBC. It was a Western. It was the first Western to be broadcast in color, and it ran for 14 seasons, 440 episodes. Wow. Until, until January 16th, 1973, when it got canceled. So that's all through the 60s and part of the 70s. Have you ever, did you ever watch Bonanza? No, I never did. So I watched the first episode yesterday because it's on YouTube. I think I bet you can get it all. And I'm just going to warn you, 
I may end up watching all of it. Oh my god! Is <laughs> Lauren Green? It wasn't good, but it was kind of good. It was very racist. That's hard to get through, you know. The... Then why would you want to watch it? Well, it was racist towards Chinese people. So, so that's okay. <laughs> I, didn't mean, I, I didn't mean it like that. It didn't. It, I wasn't coming out right. I knew it wasn't going to come out the right way. It's racist towards Chinese people only. So that's fine. No, so far it's only been racist towards Chinese well, people. You so know, far. Uh... I'm not saying that's okay, but it fascinates me because it was set in the 18. 18- hundreds yeah or whatever in the you know wild west and the wild west just the fact that it happened fascinates me like it seems it seems like it's a fictional thing that happened well i think it's highly Doesn't fictionalized it? i don't think, think it, it was is? anything like you don't think it was like billy the kid and all that mm, stuff i mean I, and they the had saloons and all that i mean they had them but i don't think it was like it, it's portrayed at all where everybody had a gun and everybody played yeah, cards I and i mean i don't know i think they did those things i think a lot of it's true but i'm sure Westerns are fictionalized, but did you know Michael Landon was on Bonanza? Uh, maybe. I've never seen a young Michael Landon. I knew him from Little House on the Prairie and uh, what's that one where he's an angel? Yep. That's what I know for the most. Uh, Highway to Heaven. Highway to Heaven, yep. I just think of him with his 82 pounds of hair, but he's he's the young guy on Bonanza. He's They call him Little Joe. Yeah. And I love it when I find pop culture like narratives that I've heard all my life. Like I've, people have called me Little Joe all my life. Oh, really? But I didn't know that that's what they were referring to. Let Michael Landon from Bonanza, now Little you Joe. Know. Uh, and what else is from that? Like Lauren Green is ridiculous. And there's a there's a big guy. That, it's three brothers, and Little Joe's the littlest one. And the bigger guy is. They said he was fifty pounds at birth. <laughs> I don't know. The first episode, there was a lot of fighting, a lot of fist what? fighting. And there was an actress, a famous actress in it, and uh, crazy. I don't know, but it was very problematic for Asian stereotypes, I think. But but I did read into the guy; his name was like Hong Su or something, like the the main guy that he's their chef. He's the mm-hmm. the family's personal chef who mm-hmm. makes Chinese food, and uh, he was very racist to me. But I looked up the character, the actor, and the actor died penniless. Aww. Had nothing, and but the cool thing is the main guy on Bonanza that uh, Parnell. Mm-hmm. I can't remember what the guy's name is. It's not Warren Green, but the other guy, Parnell Roberts. Parnell Roberts paid for Victor Sen Young's funeral and everything. Uh, Hop Singh is his name, so he was probably played not, paid nothing. Mm-hmm. Hop Singh probably was, and so he died penniless. I looked that up, and that was a sad little thing. So I think it's safe enough now that I could watch it. Until it just gets too awful racist. I don't know. It's like, I don't know. Can, is there any Westerns from that time that aren't, aren't be probably racist? racist? No. And it's not like anybody's getting paid for it anymore if I watch on YouTube, I don't think. So I'm not supporting it, I think. But it might just be too hard to bear. We'll see. It's important to be aware and don't let it whitewash it and let it go away. I mean, not that we have to celebrate it, but right. I don't know. Anyway. Bonanza started. Okay. And then September 13th was a Sunday, and a man-made object landed on the moon for the first time in history on September 13th, 1959. And it was a butt plug. It was a butt plug. Uh, a Soviet butt plug. It was a... Oh, wait. It's not a butt plug. I said I read that wrong. Uh, I'm not sure why you said that. Oh. A satellite, Lunik 2, crashed near the Sea of Tranquility. Oh. Have you ever swam in the Sea of Tranquility? No. Have you ever thought about it? No. Do you know what it is? something on the moon. Mm-hmm. Uh, it landed at 5.02 p.m. in New York, Eastern Time, and midnight Moscow time. Astronomers on Earth with telescopes were able to watch the results of the impact, which spread dust and debris over an area of 40 square kilometers over five minutes in a radius of 3.5 kilometers. Uh, the 800-pound metal sphere bore five-sided pieces stamped with the Communist Party emblem, the hammer and sickle. Mm. And uh, so that was just about 12.02 a.m. Monday morning in Moscow, but it was Sunday in New York. So we'll switch to September 14th on Monday. Soviet Union then announced the success of Lunik 2 on Radio Moscow with the words, Today, the 14th of September, 
the second Soviet cosmic rocket reached the surface of the moon, it is the first time in history that a cosmic flight has been made from Earth to another celestial body. And they went on to speaking at a news conference for the Soviet Academy of Sciences. Uh, Leonid Sedov emphasized that the USSR had no territorial claims whatsoever on the moon. So there you go. And then for the first time, a radar signal was also sent and the echo received from the planet Venus. Rhymes with penis. It does rhyme with penis. And I know you hate birthdays, but that's the same oh. day that Morton Harkett, Norwegian lead singer for AHA, was born. But okay. it wasn't in America, so I'm not going to tell you about what school he went to. Yes. But he was born in Kongsberg. And that brings us uh, to Tuesday, September 15th, 1959, where my lovely bride, Amy... Seriously, y'all, you can't see her, but she is gorgeous. Okay. She's going to tell us all about another children murder, probably. It is the Poe Elementary school bombing is what I'm going to tell about. Oh, no. And some of this I'll quote from the Houstonian.com by John Lomax. Okay, the Houstonian.com. This okay. was a school bombing that happened at Poe Elementary School in Boulevard Oaks, Houston, Texas. Oh. On September 15th, 1959. Oh, Tuesday. Yes. So um, we'll start by talking about uh, the bomber, Paul Harold Orgeron. He was 49, a tile setter and an ex-convict. He had recently moved from Altus, Oklahoma to southern Houston, Texas with his seven-year-old son, Dusty Paul. You know, I don't know that I've ever met any tile setters that aren't ex-convicts. Yeah. How do you spell his last name? Orgeron, O-R-G-E-R-O-N. Okay. Uh, according to Orgeron's ex-wife, Hazel, they divorced twice due to spousal abuse. And they got remarried? Yeah, I guess. Orgeron between? Bre- yeah. Okay. Orgeron briefly rented at a nearby boarding house using the pseudonym Bob Silver. The yeah. landlord <laughs> later said the father and son were quiet and had not caused any trouble. I wonder why he went by <laughs> Bob Silver. I don't know. Well, he's a convict. I don't yeah, know. I guess convict has to change your name, huh? Orgeron attempted to enroll his son in the second grade at Edgar Allan Poe Elementary School, but was denied since he didn't have the birth and health certificates. Huh. So he left the school office saying he would come back the next day with the documents. So uh, this is around 10 o'clock a.m., right? Minutes after he leaves. Okay. They approach a teacher outside. And um, her name was Patricia Johnston. She was on the playground. Okay. Um, she had she was in, had been in the midst of gathering her second graders for that to get him back to class. Yeah. And Orgeron, he had this brown suitcase with him. He gives her two pieces of paper to read, but it's chicken scratch. She can't, can't or, understand what it can't says. St- yeah, it, she can't tell what it says. Um, he mutters something about having power in a suitcase and the will of God and having to get to the children. So he starts asking the kids to gather around him as he's waving the suitcase around. Really? So she gets real freaked out. Yeah, like, oh, who's shit. this weirdo? And she sees this doorbell button on the bottom of the suitcase. Uh-oh. So she tells the students to get inside, get inside, get inside. And she tells two of the students to go get the principal, who was R.E. Doty, and the okay. school's custodian who was james montgomery and he was the adult the only adult male in the school oh boy so the principal and the custodian arrived orgeron ignored dodie's instructions to leave the school grounds then orgeron detonated the suitcase which contained about six sticks of dynamite the blast was so massive that witnesses thought they were under a soviet nuclear attack so he just blasted it right there blew himself up with the thing well here i go okay Um, this is a quote from six you said six sticks of dynamite yeah this dynamite was it just easy to get you just buy the store then i wonder most likely all right this is a quote from the um article and then came an earth an eardrum shredding boom it was so loud it could be heard for blocks the playground erupted in fire and flame. Oh, my god! Second graders John Fitch and William Hawes ran straight into the blast and were killed, as oh. were Montgomery, both Orgerons, and Coulter. The okay, blast stripped yeah. off every bit of Dodie's clothing and broke her leg, but mysteri- miraculously she survived. Really? That was the principal. Among the 19 people taken to Herman Hospital were two boys, Robert Taylor and Earl Fogler, each of whom had to have a mangled leg amputated. Oh, my gosh. According to a Time Magazine report, a few days later, one of the boys was heard to sob, that mean old man, that mean old man, will somebody get him? Will I need a crutch for my foot? 
And then the seven-year-old asked a question that rings out even louder post Sandy Hook. It yeah. said, why did he have to do it? Yeah. Um, and William Coulter, he was the son of Jenny Coulter, who was the teacher that was killed. Oh, really? Um, he was chief resident at Herman Hospital, and he had had to be the one to pronounce her dead. His mother. Oh, his no. Mother dead. Can you imagine? Ugh. Um, parents were slowly gripped by horror. Louise Cooley was hosting a meeting of Brownie parents at her South Boulevard home when the bomb went off. Um, they, she they said, probably heard it. And yeah. Had no idea. I mean, she, said, think. she said, well, they were building the Southwest Freeway when it happened. Oh, so yeah. She, she said, I don't something. know why none of us thought it was that. She said, I ran to the school. I think, it, I, think I was the first one there on the playground. And there they really? all were on the playground. It was terrifying, horrible, dreadful. So she said they didn't think it was that. They yeah, all they, just knew they right knew, away. I guess. It's like parents' intuition is magical sometimes. And a few years ago, Susan Cooley, who was another parent, she wrote a partial memoir of the event. Or she wasn't a parent. She was a child at the time. Oh. She said teachers in shirtwaist dresses were hurting children. Teachers were blowing whistles. She wrote, oh, just a fire drill, I thought. I fell in line like a zombie marching to the front of the school just like we did every Friday at noon. But this was Tuesday, not Friday, and the faces of the teachers were ashen, some crying. Oh, Hurry, yeah. children, one said. I moved along with the others to the hall just outside the principal's office. So then the police respond to find a six-inch deep hole in the asphalt blacktop play area. Oh, my gosh. Victims' mangled bodies were burnt. Some, including Dodie, had their clothes ripped. You said that already. One yeah. girl was blown over 100 feet away. Sheesh. Police thought the bomber might have escaped and have other bombs, oh, so the yeah. school was evacuated. You wouldn't even know. You yeah. couldn't even tell. After completing a bomb search, a roll call by teachers showed that all students were present except for those dead or injured. Very oh. little of Orgeron was found. Only small body parts were recovered from the surrounding bushes, buildings, and homes. Orgeron's left hand was found in a hedge, indicating he had died in the blast. It was used to identify him through fingerprints, which were on file from previous convictions. Yikes. His nearby station wagon contained explosives and an August 25th receipt for detonators and 150 sticks of dynamite from Grant's New 150 Mexico. sticks? So he only yes. blew up six. Imagine. His prior Yikes. convictions on safe cracking perhaps explain his knowledge of dynamite. So they they <sighs> did, the police did end up deciphering these notes that he gave yeah. her. And it says, please do not get excited over this order I'm giving you. In this suitcase you see in my hand is filled to the top with high explosive. I mean, high, high. Please believe me when I say I have two more illegible something yeah. that are set to go off at two times. I do not believe I can kill and not kill what is around me. And I mean, my son will go. Do as I say and no one will get hurt, please. And the other one is very similar. It doesn't make much sense. So he probably had something rigged to blow up his whole car. So he had not previously been a religious man, but he said he had recently found God, according to family members. Oh, God told him to do this? Yeah, who had attended the little boy's seventh birthday party at the oh, grandma's no. house just the Saturday before. I don't think that's God, bro. I know. So unlike school attacks in the early 21st century, there was no constant national and international media coverage of this attack. Yeah. The school was open the next day. Oh, can yeah. you imagine? It was about half the students attended. Oh, yeah. And that increased every day through the cleanup and repairs. Ugh. There weren't any grief counselors in 1959. No one to help children process or yeah, reframe those the experience. Poor kids. They had only one piece of advice: ignore it. We were marched yeah. right back to school the next day. That's Susan what you do. You just recalls. pretend it never happened. Yep, we didn't have any oh. counseling or anything like that. We the just sent them too. right back to school. Cooley says that not until three years ago did she discover that her daughter once believed she caused the explosion when Susan gave a speech on the 50th anniversary of the tragedy. Oh, no. Um, Doug well, Young. Why did she think she caused it? We don't know. She just was a little and didn't understand. Didn't understand what's going on. Yeah. Doug Young was an 11-year-old on the day of the bombing. He says that he did not attend Poe the next day or he believes ever again. His family moved to California just a few weeks later. The move was directly precipitated by the bombing, he believes, although he can't say for sure because the entire subject was off limits in yeah, his household. He just didn't talk about it. He said, I didn't even think about it for years. My parents never brought it up at all. I don't think it was spoken of much at our house either, says Carolyn Shepard, whose father had come by his stoicism the hard way because he'd been a Navy, Navy corpsman attached to the Marines at Iwo, Iwo Jima. She said, my parents didn't sit me down and have a long talk with me other than Miss Coulter's in heaven and you'll have a new teacher. She, yeah. I... So yeah. after the Poe bombing, um, these other sixth graders were taken outside toward the rear of the school right after the bombing. Yeah. 
and that was that was a mistake. It, this guy, one sixth grader, was quoted as saying, "Once I exited the building just outside the door, approximately thirty feet, I saw a person's leg, probably an adult leg, with the center bone clearly severed, no blood. And when I looked up, I saw smoke off towards the asphalt play area. Oh, that was ground zero. A playground transformed into an abattoir." A passerby said that the injured children looked like animals that had been field-dressed. We walked right into the massacre, says Thomas. Even at that age, I was thinking, I don't think they meant to do this, just sending us right out there. There were bodies out there, unidentifiable hunks of flesh, big gobs of something. Um, I was a nurse, but nothing will prepare you for that, Lewis Cooley is quoted as saying. There they were on the cold ground. There were pieces of what I believe was the bomber up in a tree. Finally, people started coming out of their apartments, and I was calling for them to get blankets, and then I guess ambulances started coming. So then soon the schoolyard was bedlam, police and fire teams, gawkers, frantic parents, screaming injured kids. All at once, a sea of parents rushed through the heavy double doors to my right, Susan Cooley wrote. In their frantic search to find their children, they looked over the rows of young faces. I could see it on their faces, brows together as they mentally sorted children. No, no, no. And then when the correct child registered, the face softened, and the parent grabbed the child from the lineup, squatted down to eye level, and held the child too close. Bill Thomas recalls that one mother was in such a hysterical state, she ran right past her uninjured child. Dr. Denton Cooley was driving downtown to a meeting of the board of the Bank of Texas, He first heard of the Poe bombing on his car radio, Hmm. and the initial reports indicated there was no word of survivors. So he then, in a thigh-to-ankle cast because of a broken kneecap he'd gotten from a kicking kicking horse, Uh. U-turned and headed to Poe at top speed. When I got there, they told me that Johnny Fitch had been taken to the Children's Hospital, Cooley remembers, and the Fitches were close friends to the Cooleys. So I got back in my car and headed to Children's Hospital. When I got there and went to the emergency room, they told me that Johnny was dead. So I had the unpleasant task of having to tell. Mr. Fitch, that their little boy was dead. Oh, that's the worst. How do you even tell somebody that? In the chaos, some kids slipped away into the neighborhood. Doug Young went to a friend's house and stayed there till 4 o'clock, six hours after the blast. He says, when I came back to my house in the afternoon, my mom and dad were standing on the sidewalk near the house. I didn't know that they'd been through such hell not knowing where I was, so I got, I got hugs and then a spanking after that. Susan Cooley recalls that she and Shepard heard a radio report announcing that their beloved Miss Coulter was dead. We just looked at each other. You know, we were second graders. You can't even comprehend it. I think we were all in shock. Mm. Around sundown, Young and his parents drove back to Poe to inspect the scene. A crater six inches deep had been blasted into the black top on the playground. A maple tree had been stripped bare, its leaves replaced by bits of cloth and strips of human flesh. Ugh. Firemen were climbing it and washing all the blood off. Skin was still hanging from the trees. I remember that. One post student who did claim to have been hugely affected was a fifth grader. His name was Larry Shat. Oh, he, unfortunate name. Poor kid. Later Larry Shat. He he later has this connection to um, Jim Jones and really? Jonestown. You're kidding. Yes, he um, by his early twenties was a intravenous meth addict. Um, man, alternately manic and paranoid. Larry Shat was? Yeah. And, um. Poor Larry Shat. And then in the 70s, he got clean with the assistance of some mysterious benefactor who paid for him to go to medical school. So then he went back home to Texas. And then his friends. A mysterious benefactor paid for him? Yeah. And then his friends hear that their lost cause of a friend who was by 1977 a doctor in a San Francisco hospital. So they were, um. The word trickled back that Shat had left the States to become a medical missionary in South America, Guyana to be exact, where uh-huh. he served as camp physician at the People's Temple Agricultural Project for his benefactor, the Reverend Jim Jones. Whoa. It was Shat who mixed the grape-flavored cyanide-laced flavor aid concoction that Jones's congregation consumed in their infamous act of mass Really? Larry Shat did that? And yes. he's related, and he was at this so he, massacre. That's right. But this isn't Florida assistant coach Larry Shat, no. who was a head coach in Florida. Okay. Nope. So that's the story of the Poe Elementary School bombing. Wow. That's crazy. And who would have known yeah. that Larry Shat was part of this? I know it. And there's a guy named Larry Shat. <laughs> that's the only good thing about this whole thing is that I now know someone exists named Larry Shat. I know it. How do you spell Larry Shat? Was it S H A T T? No, it was S C H something. Oh. Larry Shat all over me. Larry Shat, everybody.
Uh, that's an awful tragic thing. And if S C H A C H T. Oh, okay. So it doesn't look like shat, but it's shat. Yeah. So if you had anything to do with this bombing or were in this, if you live there at this time, tweet us at History for Jerks. Oh, it's not Twitter anymore. So are you in tweeting excess? I'm going to leave Twitter soon, but, um, I've already left. We're on Instagram, so you can get us there. Yes. And on TikTok at Gruff and Loud Show. Uh, but yeah, that's that's awful. But the, the, another thing that happened on that day, a fateful thing besides that, on yeah. September 15th, 1959, yeah. uh, that a local tour guide was at the, uh, the Mayan site of Chichen Itza in Mexico. He was a tour guide. His name was Jose Humberto Gomez. He suddenly discovered a false wall that concealed a network of caves that became an archaeolo- archaeological treasure trove wow. of the Mayan civilization that day. Wow. We wouldn't have known half the sh- shit we do about Mayans. Which is nothing in, no. my personal, in my personal case. Oh, that you know nothing about right. Mayans. Well, you should watch YouTube videos on it before you go to bed. No, thanks. I've decided my favorite thing is to listen to archaeologists because all the like History Channel documentaries on them, they're like mumbling to themselves while they discover things <laughs> real quietly. So it's just I'm like, hmm, I think there's hmm, history there. It's very relaxing for bed. All right. What's What's next? <laughs> I don't care. No. Okay, also Dr. Katz is fun to listen to. September 16th, 1959 was a Wednesday. And in this, this is our new, we're trying out new formats. Our podcast might become a, 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 a Xerox copy machine podcast where we talk about the history of copy machines. Uh, and so I'm going to practice. The first successful plain paper copy machine, the Xerox 914, was introduced at a show at the Sherry Netherland Hotel in New York on September 16th, 1959, and then a federal court in Pennsylvania struck down as unconstitutional that same day a 1928 law that required the reading of 10 Bible verses each day in state schools. Oh, my God. In Pennsylvania. That was required until then. Jesus. In a case brought by Ellery Shemp. Good for them for yep. bringing a case. It was a copy machine, and That's they brought ridiculous. that case. 10 Bible verses every day. You know they're wanting to bring that yeah, shit back. Yeah, people want to bring that back. They want um, to put the Ten Commandments back on the wall in Texas in a couple of Isn't states. that crazy? It is crazy. Yeah. This is not a Christian nation. Nope. <sighs> okay, here's a little fun one you'll like. Have you ever heard of a, a band called James Carter and the Prisoners? No. You ever heard of this story? No. Um, The opening song sung by Prisoners and Oh Brother Where Art Thou? Remember yes. that? Yep. Remember how that song goes? Kind of. Should I play it while I'm telling the story? Sure. So the opening song, sung by prisoners in Oh Brother Where Art Thou, was an actual recording of actual prisoners in 1959. And one of the prisoners, James Carter, was tracked down and paid 40 years later. Wow. Isn't that crazy? So this is James Carter. Listen to James Carter and the Prisoners. Wow. He was born a Mississippi sharecropper. And as a young man, he was several times an inmate of the Mississippi prison system. He was paid $20,000 and credited for a four decade old lead vocalist performance in a prison work song used in the 2000 film Oh Brother, What Art Thou. Wow. Isn't that cool? Yeah, that is cool. Yeah. Alan Lomax and Shirley Collins recorded him in stereo sound, leading a group of prisoners singing Poe Lazarus, an African-American bad man ballad. It's also a work song. Yeah. While uh, chopping logs and time to the music. So God. there you go. Imagine being able to. Being, imagine being exploited and forced to work. Oh, and yeah. being able to come up with music, like, and not just music, but like beautiful music. Just to get music, through it. Yeah, yeah. Amazing music. Yeah. Just to get through it 
and and to have that be i mean it's like the human spirit is is well that's what, that's why i always so much i mean i always go back to african-american people are better people well, than, you it's know. like imagine how far we would be along if everyone in history would have had the opportunity to be the best that they could be and flourish you know, yeah, they weren't held down didn't get and in forced. the way of a, Yeah, yeah. That. We probably have so many more inventions and we stuff. We would be so, yes. Yeah. Cures. But yeah, everybody's just, yeah. But anyway. Led by greed and treating people yeah. shitty. Yeah. All right. September 18th, 1959 was a Friday. Uh, and the jetway, the extending bridge that permits airline passengers to travel directly between the terminal and the airplane yeah. door without going outside was used for the first time. It was installed on July 22nd at the Atlanta, Atlanta airport by oh, Delta they Airlines. Oh, climb the ladder to uh, get in the plane before I think that. you had to go outside yeah, and, then, we yeah, did. and do that. So, so this is the first time that happened. Okay. So boom. Uh, and that's the same day that Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev spoke at the UN in New York. I think I mentioned in the last couple episodes that he was visiting US, the U.S. Yeah. Um, and he wasn't allowed to go to Disneyland. He was all pissed. Uh, but he spoke at the U.N. in New York to outline a proposed four-year disarmament plan. The Soviet presentation was more drastic than the British presentation of the day before, calling for initial reduction of the armed forces of the USSR, U.S. and China to 1.7 million members followed by liquidation of all foreign military bases and eventually destruction of all nuclear, chemical, and bacteriological weapons and rockets. And that's also, in serial killer news, the same day that Harvey Glattman, uh, who you talked about before, he's yes. the Tender Hearts or something? Lonely, Lonely Hearts, Hearts killer, killer, I believe. Uh, he was executed in California's gas chamber. And Correct. one more thing, on September 18th, uh, it was... Uh, Memphis State University, now the University of Memphis, admitted its first black students. The Memphis State 8 began classes without incident, but were restricted from white areas of the campus. Yeah. yeah. Of course. And then on Saturday, September 9th, the most memorable portion of Nikita Khrushchev's 11-day tour of the U.S. was his stop in Los Angeles. The Soviet leader was outraged by a speech made by L.A. Mayor Norris Polson at a banquet he was offended by a performance of can-can dancers and annoyed that he would not be allowed to visit Disneyland. Uh, he, he complained at a reception, why not? What do you have there, rocket launch pads? After Polson's speech, Khrushchev responded, I can't just go and one never knows whether another head of a Soviet government will ever visit this country. Days later, Khrushchev calmed down, blaming the Disneyland cancellation on legitimate security concerns and saying of Polson, Perhaps he got on the wrong side of the bed. He really wanted to see Mickey Mouse, I think. He was pissed. <laughs> and then on the 21st of September, it was a Monday, and we got our first birthday. Hit it back to the video trip. Amy, Amy hates birthday. Amy hates birthday. This, guy, this one's cool because this guy briefly attended the University of Michigan. And he did not cut it out. Uh -oh. He was born in Detroit, Michigan. He was raised in nearby St. Clair Shores. Is that he has three siblings. Oh, what's his fucking name? Dave Coulier. <laughs> Dave Coulier, Jesus. yes. He was born there, yeah. Uh, he got his start in stand-up comedy in high school by impersonating his principal and other staff over his high school's PA system. He graduated in 1977 from Notre Dame High School in Harper Woods, Michigan, home of the Fighting Irish. He was a member of the varsity ice hockey team, uh, playing defense alongside future NHL player John Blum. So that's uh, the notable alumni. Um, so there you go. And he did go to the University of Michigan, so he is a Wolverine, but he dropped out after his freshman year to pursue comedy full time. And I have, I will admit right now, he, this will probably never get back to him, but I have pranked. Prank, I've called, I've prank called Dave Coulier several times. What? Uh, yeah, I had a cell phone number for a while. Oh, my God. <laughs> I, but he can tell it's you, right? Well, now they can. But this was like when cell phones first came, you couldn't, oh they weren't God. registering names and everything. So he would answer? Yeah. He stopped answering after a while uh, because 
a person we both, you and I both know, got his number because he gave it to her, like hitting on her, kind of. Oh my god! And she, she didn't really, because he's a lot older than her, and he, she was like, "Here, yeah. here, prank him." Uh, but so we started pranking him all the time. Then finally, somebody was like, "This is the wrong number. This isn't Dave Coulier or something." And uh. I st- I finally just deleted it, but I shouldn't have pranked him. So Dave Coulier, if you're listening, yeah, sorry, that was me, and I'm sorry for pranking you. I don't know what I used to say. Probably cut it. Out. Who knows what I said? But oh I'm sorry for prank calling Dave Coulier. <laughs> so I did. Oh, I did a whole bunch of times. I feel bad. Um, but now yeah, what are you gonna do? What you gonna do? I used to love Dave Coulier before. I didn't really like Full House that much. I loved Out of Control, which is that show on Nickelodeon he did. Mm-hmm. He was hilarious. He was great. I loved him on that. So, there you go. There you go. All right. September 22nd was a Tuesday, and the Chicago White Sox won the American League pennant for the first time in 40 years with a 4-2 victory over the second-place Cleveland Indians. Air raid sirens were sounded at 1030 on authorization by Chicago Fire Commissioner Robert Quinn. At least one-third of Chicagoans surveyed later said they thought that the sirens were a warning of an impending attack. Yikes. That's the same day that the Havana Sugar Kings beat the Richmond Virginians to win the championship of baseball's AAA International League for 13,021 fans, which I never knew. I'm very familiar with the International League because that's what the Toledo Mudhens play in. Yeah. It's a minor league league. Yeah. And I never knew why they were called the International League because it's all American teams. The Havana Sugar Kings used oh. to be in it. And Havana, Cuba, that's, I think, why it was called the International League, yeah. but the Havana team would be moved to Jersey City, New Jersey after this season. Uh-huh. So then I think they were the last international team. But again, if you're thinking about buying me something, I love defunct baseball team hats, so you can find me a Havana Sugar Kings hat. Uh, there you go. Okay. Um, Noted. Anyway, they moved because of Castro and the revolution right. and everything. So September 23rd uh, was a Wednesday, and William... F. Munford, the president of the United States Steel. Mm-hmm. This is strange and sort of comical way to die. Okay. In okay. dumb ways to die. Walter F. Mumford was the president of the United States Steel. He was fatally injured while putting away kitchen utensils at his summer home oh in Chatham, Massachusetts. Oh, my God. Munford, exhausted from the ongoing steelworkers' strike, slipped on the wax kitchen floor and a paring knife in his hand cut three inches deep into his abdomen. So complications oh from the wound contributed to his death five days later. Oh, Isn't that nuts? Yes, that is very nuts. Oh, poor guy. Some ways to die. Uh, oh, and then after, in more Khrushchev visit news, he after visiting Washington, D.C., New York City, and L.A., and San Francisco, Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev visited Coon Rapids, Iowa, and had dinner at the farm of Roswell Garst. Okay. He was a farmer who developed a hybrid corn seed in 1930 that allowed greater crop yields than open pollinated corn. Okay. You know the difference? Can you tell the difference? No. Me neither. And I read a whole bunch on it and still didn't understand it. So who we're cares? leaving it there. Just all you got to know is there's an awesome farmer named Roswell Garst. All right. It's not as good as Larry Shat, but it's a funny name. September 4th, 9, 24th, sorry, 1959, was a Thursday. In the race to be the first to photograph the far side of the moon, the U.S. suffered a setback when the Atlas Able rocket exploded on the launch pad during tests. Oh. Uh, so they failed. Um, and so the Soviet probe would be launched on October 4th and photographed the far side two days later. So we lost that one. And then September 26th was a Saturday. Unable to persuade businesses to spend thousands of dollars to buy its copy machines, the Xerox company introduced a leasing program that would become a model followed by other businesses. The $95 per month lease could be canceled on 15 days' notice and included repairs on 2,000 copies each month, four cents per copy afterwards. So now you know why copy machines are rented because mm-hmm. nobody can afford to buy them. Right. And this is soon becoming a copy machine podcast. Cast, history Thank podcast. God. We're just going to talk about the history of copying copies. September 27th was a Sunday, and uh, Nikita Khrushchev and Dwight D. Eisenhower held their final conversations, including 
points for Khrushchev to deliver later in the week to CCP Chairman Mao Zedong in China. Uh, Khrushchev returned to the Soviet Union the next day and then flew the day after to Beijing. And uh, the Dodgers and Brewers, Milwaukee Braves, sorry, they weren't the Brewers yet, mm-hmm. finished tied for first place in the National League with identical 86 and 68 records. And that same day, Vince Lombardi made his NFL coaching debut, guiding the Green Bay Packers to a 9-6 to upset of the Chicago Bears. Fuck the Packers. And then on September 28th, which was a Monday, the Quick Draw McGraw show was first broadcast as a cartoon syndicated by Hanna-Barbera and introduced several, well, several well-known characters. That's right. Along with the guitar smash sound effect. Uh, the three segments spoofed westerns, Quick Draw McGraw and Baba Louie, detective shows Super Snooper and Blabbermouse, and family shows Augie Doggy and Doggy Daddy. You remember? I don't remember those? any of the other ones. I don't either. I guess, well, it was 1959, so yeah. I guess we shouldn't. Right. We're not that old. But they had them on. Yeah. I definitely watched reruns of Quick Draw McGraw. Yeah. And uh, I see, I see, I put him with like Huckleberry, Huckleberry Hound, Hound and, and all those guys. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Pink Panther. But those were around then, too. I think they started yeah. in the 50s and 60s. But I think Snaggle I Puss. remember them more from just like Laugh Olympics and stuff. Yeah. They just mixed them all together. Yeah. Um, okay. Got Laugh Olympics. Yes. Remember that? That was great. I loved it. Uh, on September Snaggle 29th. Buzzy Vin. Snaggle Vin. Uh, was that Jinx the cat or Jinx? Snagglepuss. Jinxy. Oh, that was Snagglepuss. And Jinx mm-hmm. was like, I love Mises to pieces. Anyway, on September 29th, that Tuesday, the Dodgers beat the Braves 6-5 to five to win a playoff for the National League pennant and advance the World Series. And uh, on September, or no, then we're going to jump to October. I'll burn through October fast. Okay. Promise. Yep. October 2nd, the Twilight Zone debuted on CBS. With the first Ooh, episode, Where good. Is Everybody? Friday, it was a Friday night. Um, that was good. On October 6th, it was, it was a good show, right? Twilight yeah. Zone? Yeah. It's still fun to kind of watch those. Yeah. Um, October 6th was a Tuesday. At a congressional subcommittee hearing investigating allegations of fraud on television quiz programs, mm-hmm. former game show contestants Herbert Stemple and James Snodgrass revealed that they had been supplied the answers in advance on the show 21. The two would be portrayed in the film Quiz Show by John Turturro and Douglas McGrath, respectively. And in weird news, the International Olive Oil Council was created with 17 member nations representing 97% of the world's exports of olive oil. And we'll get into that on our future season of the History of Olive Oil podcast. Jesus, Uh, kill me now. Kill you now. You don't. Want, you don't want to. I don't want to be on a history of olive oil podcast. Either. Okay, Thursday, October eighth, the Los Angeles Dodgers beat the Chicago White Sox ninety three to win the nineteen fifty nine World Series in the sixth game. Larry Sherry, the winning pitcher, not Larry Shat, had saved games two, three, and four as well. And then Saturday, October tenth. Oh, that's done. I'll skip that one. Thank you. I will skip that for you. October 13th, Marie Osmond was born, and October 14th, Errol Flynn died. Boom, back to back. Errol Flynn was a rapist, pedophile. Weirdo. He was? Yeah. Oh, so I shouldn't talk about him. I didn't know he was a rapist. Yeah, he, he was. He like, died of a heart attack. He was only 50 years old. Was, so in between, in between, well, not in between those days, but on the day that Errol Flynn died, the other one I was going to have you do is Ruth. Erdanivia, a widow in Allentown, Pennsylvania, murdered her five children with overdoses of barbiturates and unsuccessfully attempted suicide. After being found sane to stand trial, she pled guilty and was sentenced to life in prison. And she was paroled in 1967. Oh, man. So you murder your children and you only spend six years in prison? That's kind of nuts. That's nuts. Um, And then Thursday, 10-15, October 15th, Chances are she's a white woman. Yeah, probably. The television series The Untouchables, based on the autobiography of federal prohibition prohibition enforcement agent Elliot Ness, premiered on ABC, is one of the most violent shows ever to be shown on television at the time, with the killings of Chicago gangsters shown on every episode. You know who starred in that show, What's The Untouchables? 
Robert Stack played oh. Elliot Ness. It ran for four seasons, 118 episodes. I never saw that. Yeah. I don't think I ever watched it either. I don't think it was on in syndication. Yeah, I don't think so either. But it was really violent for its time, I guess, for 1959. Hmm. Um, on Sunday, October 18th, former President Harry S. Truman appeared in a series of comic sketches on the Jack, Jack Benny program. Uh, critics disagreed on whether the dignity of the American presidency had been compromised. Now that now they all go on our oh city. Oh, my God, yeah. Yeah, they do everything. Um, okay, there's a bunch of Lee Harvey Oswald news, but cause I don't know if you know he defected to the USSR. He tried to defect. Oh, it did, And he slashed yeah. his wrists in, in Russia, so that was all happening around this time. Okay. Um, and then October 23rd, 1959, you like this in horror movie history. The most popular horror film yeah. to that time was released in American theaters. Psycho? No, that was the 60s. Not yet. The October- Birds. Nope. It's uh, a monster movie. Oh, it's a monster movie. Oh, hold on, hold on. Not the Wolfman. It's on, here's a hint. It's on Weird Al's birthday. Oh, that doesn't help me at all. Another hint. Weird Al was born in Linwood, California. Is it, um, wait, 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 The Blob? Nope. There's a cereal. The the thing? The swamp thing? Nope. One of the monster cereals. Frankenstein? Nope. That's Frankenberry. Dracula? Nope. Not Count Chocula. Booberry? <laughs> not a ghost. <laughs> but fruity, fruity Mummy or whatever? Yeah, The Mummy. The Mummy. The Mummy was the most popular movie of that. Oh. Uh, horror film to that time. Did you ever see that movie? No. You haven't seen The Mummy? I've seen different mummies. Different versions of The Mummy. You didn't see the original one, though? I don't know if I have. Huh. We should watch it. I wonder if it's any good. I've seen, like, all the other originals, like the Dracula, the Frankenstein. Yeah. I know you made me watch a lot of those, but let's watch The Mummy. Okay. Want to watch that together someday? Maybe. All right. Hit the birthday music, even though you already know who it is. Matt Truman. Love you, Matt Truman. Matt Truman, by the way, you're a good-looking man. Thanks for that theme song. Uh, the only child of Mary Elizabeth uh, and Nick Yankovic. He was raised in nearby Linwood, California. Weird Al, baby. Yeah. You know, his father believed the key to success was doing for a living whatever makes you happy. And he often reminded his son, Weird Al, of that philosophy. And I booked Weird Al from a comedy festival last year. Uh, his mother was a stenographer from Kentucky. And... I don't know what his dad did, um, but his first accordion lesson, Weird Al, was uh, what sparked his interest in music and took place on a day before his seventh birthday. A door-to-door salesman traveling through Linwood offered his parents a choice of accordion or guitar lessons at a local music school, school, and his parents chose the accordion over the guitar because they figured there should be at least one more accordion-playing Yankovic in the world, in, re- in reference to Frankie Yankovic, whom they were not related. He also said they chose the accordion because they were convinced it would revolutionize rock. Oh, my God. <laughs> the accordion. And since Weird Al's mom didn't let him out of the house very often, he had yeah. plenty of time to practice the instrument at home. He began kindergarten a year earlier than most children and skipped second grade, later saying, my classmates seemed to think I was some kind of rocket scientist, so I was labeled a nerd early on. He attended Linwood High School, home of the Knights. Uh, also, a notable alumni include Suge Knight. Weird Al went to the same high school as Suge Knight, home okay. of the Knights. Where his unusual schooling experience meant he was two years younger than most of his classmates. He was not interested in sports or social events, but he was active in extracurricular activities, including the Volcano Worshippers Club, which he later said did absolutely nothing and was started just to get an extra picture in the yearbook. That's funny. <laughs> we should have Henry start that yeah. in his school. Uh, he graduated in 76 and was valedictorian of the senior class. Hmm. And he earned a bachelor's degree in architecture from California Polytechnic State University. How about that? Yeah. But you didn't know that. Nope. All right, a couple more quick things, and we'll end this episode. October 25th was a Sunday. A propeller-driven plane served as Air Force One for the last time when President Eisenhower flew from Augusta, Georgia, back to Washington 
on the Columbine is what they called it. Super Constellation. It was a prop plane. Oh, my God. Air Force One was a prop plane. And then October 26th, which was a Monday, Earth's residents were able to see the far side of the moon for the first time as photographs from the Lunik 3 satellite were released by the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. And on October 28th, Wednesday, in spandex news, the synthetic fabric spandex, uh, trademarked as Lycra, was introduced by DuPont, mm. relying upon a fiber K, a synthetic Thank God. elastomer that Thank was God for spandex. lighter and more durable than conventional elastic. Women love wearing spandex. Well, it, it's, it's ideal for swimsuits. Yeah, it's stretchy. Stretchy. It's comfortable, right? Yes. U.S. Senator John F. Kennedy of Massachusetts began planning for a presidential run with a meeting at Bobby Kennedy's home on that same day as Spandex was introduced. Um, Sweet. And on October, also 28th, Flight 349, Mm -hmm. uh, Piedmont Airlines Flight 349 en route from Washington, D.C., crashed into a mountain near Crozet, Virginia, near the plane's destination of Charlottesville, killing 23 of the 24 people on board. The sole survivor, sur- the, the sole survivor, hello, the sole survivor, Phil Bradley, yeah. was located after 36 hours and would part- participate in the dedication of a memorial on the 50th anniversary of the disaster. And Phil Bradley is officially immortal. Yes. And that's, that's it. We're going to leave ooh, it there. Ooh. And we only have... That leaves one, one more, more episode. And I'm going to talk season. about a good one next time. You got a good one? I do. Oh my gosh. November, December. Join us in two weeks for the November, December episode of 1959. And that will be the finale. It might be the final finale of American Timelines as we know we just it. Don't know. Or we might do a spinoff called Maud. Maud the podcast, where we just we talk about do one where we episodes just of Maud. Talk to our dogs the whole time in a baby voice. We're going to do whatever we want, a whole season of just. Random things, random guests. We're going to have lots of guests. American Timelines is going to go through a metamorphosis. It's going to be off the rails. There's going to be drunken shenanigans. There's going to be farts. Stone shenanigans a little bit. Whoa, hey. All right. It's time to get out of here, Chuck Berry. It is. We love you all. Love you. listening, everybody. Take all your stuff. Take all your stuff. Truman Ego Trip is the greatest band of all time. Buy their music.